Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. This is the last section of the book of Samuel. And in these last chapters, the superficial reader might come away with the idea that this is a random collection of stories without any chronological markers or thematic connection. In fact, in the Hebrew, this is a highly structured narrative from 21 to the end of the book. It's been described as three concentric circles with two narratives in the outer circle, chapters 21 and 24, two lists immediately within that circle in chapter 21, 15 and following, and 23, 8 and following. And then in the center, two songs, one in chapter 22 and the other in chapter 23. And you can see that the way in which your English Bible is laid out. Now that very careful construction is telling you that however random these stories may appear to be, there is a theological lesson, a theological message that they are intended to convey. And I think we could summarize these last chapters as this. What they do is they give us a final, official, God-inspired perspective on the kingdom of God as it is administered under the reign of King David. Final perspective on the kingdom of God as it is administered under King David. What were the features of that reign? One of the features of that reign that stands out in the minds of those of us who've been following this series now for the last 56 sermons, uh, you've got old in the period in which we've been looking at Samuel. Certainly I have. Uh, It's aged me. But in that that period, one of the things that stands out about the reign of David in particular is the mercy the mercy of God that David expressed in his ministry. And so in this last reflection on his reign as king, it is the mercy of God that is the first theme that emerges in the perspective of his life. So I want you to look at that this morning. It is the mercy of God that is in the foreground. And we see the need for mercy, first of all, in the story. Because sometime in David's reign, we're not sure when, sometime in David's reign, a serious famine hit the land. Lengthy famines, of course, were not unusual in the ancient world as they're not unusual today. But what is surprising is that uh, this famine should be repeated year after year, one after another, three years on a trot. I wonder what we would do today if we... in the United States were confronted by serious famine conditions that resulted year in and year out. We'd turn on the weather channel or we'd wait when we're watching the nightly news. We'd wait. You know those teasers you get right through the nightly news? They start before it even starts. Wait to get the weather report. Then you turn on the news to get the weather report and they tell you it's coming. They give you a little teaser and then it comes again and they give you another teaser. And so it goes on until eventually by the time you could really throttle them, they get to actually telling you what it is that's going to happen in the weather in the next 24 hours or in the next week. Well, we turn on the television to find out. We'd listen to the experts. You can imagine if it was in David's day, there would be the experts on television and they would be telling us, pontificating as they do about all the secondary causes 
global warming, solar flares, carbon footprint, and any one of a number of smart explanations as to why it might be that we were having famine repeated year in and year out. But David, of course, and the people of Israel were not modern-day America. They are the covenant people of God. And although they might have been interested in secondary causes, they're far more interested in what the ultimate cause of, of the famine might be, because they were God's chosen people. They had been brought to the promised land, and they'd been told that in this promised land, a land flowing in milk and honey, that they would never lack any good thing. That is, if they kept the law of God, they would keep the land, and they would keep God's abundant blessing in the land. So when they saw the repetition, you see, of this famine conditions, those of them who knew their Bibles, those who understood the Scriptures, would immediately kind of clock the fact that there must be something significantly wrong because famines, along with military defeats and diseases, were part of God's warning that if they broke covenant with Him, if they broke their relationship with Him by disobedience, the covenant curses would kick into play. And those covenant curses had among them famine. So, for example, in, Deut in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, we have warnings of famine conditions in response to covenant unfaithfulness. Let me read to you from Leviticus 26, where God says that there would be military defeats, and if they didn't listen, things would get worse. If in spite of this you will not listen to me, God says, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength will be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So they are under a curse. Every man, woman, boy, girl living in Israel is facing the implications of the covenant curse of famine at this time. Apparently nobody knows what to do about it. I mean, there are times in the history of Israel, Hosea tells us, when God's people in their misery called out to God. It was kind of a foxhole prayer. When you're in trouble, pray, and then the rest of the time, forget about it. But even in this circumstance, they weren't even doing that kind of thing. Nobody knows what to do about it except King David. Look at verse 1. David sought the face of the Lord. It's a very interesting expression. It's used in the secular world of that time. It means to seek the face of a king. It means to phone up and make an appointment to see the CEO. It means to go ahead and try and find an audience with the king or the queen or, or make an appointment to see the president. It means a personal movement outwards towards someone in high position. And so we find David at the early part of this chapter, David taking the initiative to seek the king, that is, the king of Israel, who was ultimately God himself. David was king under God, who is the king, and he seeks a meeting with God. 
And you can imagine David making his way to the tabernacle, making his way to the place that housed the Ark of the Covenant, which was regarded as this, the footstool of the throne of God. And there he goes to the place where people gathered for worship. There he goes to the place where he can meet with God. And he comes to find help. He comes to find insight. He comes to find a word from God that will make sense of the situation. And he comes seeking God. Uh, we today, of course, find ourselves sometimes in circumstances that are strange, that cause us, give us pause for thought and, and cause us perplexity. And what are we to do in those circumstances? The writer to the Hebrews says we are to come boldly, boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. And we ask the question, how can I come boldly to the throne of grace? There is no tabernacle today. There is no holy of holies today. There's no mercy seat on the, 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 the top of the Ark of the Covenant today. Where do I go for this? Does this mean that when I'm under pressure in my life, when circumstances are bad in my life, I have to retreat into the quietness of my room and into a kind of solitariness of my experience and there in the quietness of my own place and time cry to God and to seek God's will and God's wisdom. I don't think so. I think too often we've been influenced by the misuse of a biblical text in Corinthians that says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and we kind of take from that a number of things actually we take from that that we should all be fit and healthy and do stuff and look after the body which is the temple of the Holy Spirit but we also take from that that my resolution to my problems I have to work out on my own here it's me Jesus and me there used to be a song Jesus and me for each tomorrow for every heartache and every sorrow I know that I can depend upon my newfound friend and so to the end it's Jesus and me bah, 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 bah. that one Jesus and me, is that the idea you have about the Christian life? That you can get through the Christian life with just Jesus and you. But revisit that verse in Corinthians for a moment. What that verse in Corinthians says is this. Your, plural, body, singular, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If Paul had meant to say your body, he would have said your, singular, Bodies, plural, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Actually, he gives you help in understanding what it means because in that very letter, he expounds that the church is the body of Christ. And there's another verse that says very clearly, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So where do I go? Do I go off in splendid isolation or do I go to the place where God has covenanted to meet with his people and speak to his people? I come to the church of God, I meet with my brothers and sisters and I cry to God for insight and help. David does this. He goes and he seeks God in the context of that period in the history of redemption. Today the temple and the tabernacle is not a building and it's not a location. It is the church of God and we all are being built into a spiritual temple in the Lord where we can meet with God together.
Well, David is a prophet, so he goes to God and he gets special revelation. The Lord says to him, the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. He gets a word from God. You and I get special revelation too. We don't get special revelation the way David did directly. We get special revelation indirectly by the word of God that is preached to us. And I fully expect that as you sit in this room this morning, somebody here with a problem or an issue in their mind as they're listening to the sermon will receive special revelation from God that particularly addresses that very issue that I don't even know about because the Word of God will answer your question. Send you off in another direction perhaps, but will speak into your story. Well, listen to the Word of God to David. The Word of God to David was a surprising Word of God. It was about the Gibeonites. Who on earth are the Gibeonites? Well, they first appear in Joshua chapter 9. These are people who have their heads screwed on. They belong to Canaan. God had said to the Israelites, when you get into Canaan, you are to remove the people of Canaan. And the Gibeonites realized that they were they were under the divine ban. They were going to be annihilated. So what they did was they dressed up in their old clothes and they got some moldy food and they took that with them. And the guys didn't shave for a few days so that they looked, you know, that shadow thing they get when they're all rough and thingy. Some of you haven't shaved for more than a couple of days. And they made their way to the Israelites and they pretended that they didn't belong to Canaan, that they'd come from a distance. And they said, you know, we've come from a distance. We really want to be reconciled to you, Israelites. We'd really like to become part of Israel. Is there any way you could? And Joshua made a covenant with them. He made an oath to them. He swore an oath. In fact, what it says is in Joshua 9 verse 20, we will let them live so that the wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. These Gibeonites were in a covenant relationship with the people of God and therefore with God himself. And Israel was committed by an oath. Israel was committed by an oath before God to preserve and protect the security of the Gibeonites. Until the time of Saul, they kept that oath. But Saul, we're told here, Saul in his zeal, in his zeal for Judah and Israel, verse 2, struck at them. In fact, Paul had been, uh, Saul had been told that he was supposed to kill the Amorites. He, he didn't do that. They were far too fierce. But he thought, here are these other Gibeonites. They're living in Israel. They're living in the promised land. And this is what political rulers very often do, by the way. They've done it right throughout history. What they do is, when things, the pressures are on, or their financial difficulties, or economic difficulties, look around for a scapegoat. Saul looked around for a scapegoat, and he thought, the final solution, annihilate the Gibeonites. And he did. He did. In disobedience to God, breaking a covenant with these people. And the famine came as a signifier that all Israel was implicated in the breaking of this covenant 
And all Israel, therefore, was under the shadow of the curse of God that would fall on everybody in Israel. Because the covenant had been broken by their king, Saul. That's what lands us in the story. The need for mercy. Second thing we learn from the story is the basis of mercy. The basis of mercy. See, these Gibeonites, they, they were a minority. and They'd been a minority, but now they were even more of a minority because so many of their men had been killed. And they hadn't complained. All these years, David, had now been a, David was reigned for about 40 years. We don't know at what point in his reign this happened. But... It, but they were a minority and they hadn't said a word. They had kept quiet. That's what you do when you're a minority. You keep your head down. You keep quiet. You don't kind of make noises. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. And the Gibeonites had been quiet about what had happened. But now God's told David, David the second king, he takes the initiative. He goes to them, verse 3. David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement? That's the right word. It's the Hebrew word kippah, which is the normal word for atonement. How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? That last phrase, bless the heritage of the Lord, comes from the covenant God made with Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed or would bless him. David is concerned that the covenant with Abraham isn't working here because these people cannot bless the Lord and the Lord's people because they have been so oppressed. They've been so hurt. They've done such, had such terrible things done to them. He says, how can we atone for this? What can we do about this? How can this offense to God and to you be resolved? That was the question. Now, this idea of atonement, of course, is built into biblical religions right throughout the Hebrew scriptures. There we're taught the principle that sin needs to be atoned for. And our Christian understanding of atonement is shaped by the use of this language in Hebrew scripture. That to put things right, to reconcile people to God and to one another, takes an action, an action of atonement. And in this action of atonement, there are two words you need to know. The word propitiation and the word expiation. Propitiation is a word that has to do with justice. And I'll come back to that word in a moment. Expiation is the word really we're interested in. That was what the people were interested in, the people of Israel. What they wanted to do was to sort the problem, fix the problem right now. They wanted to resolve the issue, get rid of the famine get all reconciled and happy. They wanted the Gibeonites to be happy because they were unhappy about how they'd been treated. They wanted the whole problem to go away, to go away, to, to cleanse it out of the system so that everything was fine again. That's what we want. That's expiation. But there is in the Bible no expiation without, first of all, propitiation. David knew that. How can we deal with the offended justice of God? Before ever we can sort this problem here at the horizontal level, we must fix this vertical issue. 
God has been offended. God's covenant relationship with his people has been abused. His people stand guilty by solidarity, corporate solidarity before God. We don't stand as, as individuals, but as a corporate body of humanity, we are guilty before God. And these Israelites were guilty before God. Propitiation was required. And so he asks them, what can we do? What can we do to address the issue of justice here? It isn't enough, you see, simply where people have been abused and misused. In a sense, just to give them their freedom or to give them stuff. Justice needs to be done. That's what the South Africans realized at the end of apartheid, that they needed to do justice. People, the people who'd been oppressed required justice to be done. So David asked them the question, and in their response, we discover these Gibeonites knew their law of God very well indeed. They knew that the law of God did not allow them to ask for monetary reparations. The law of God was quite clear about that. The law of God has spelt out that if somebody has been killed, murdered, that having some kind of monetary resolution is not an option. It is not on the table. Why? Because if someone has been murdered, it is an image bearer of God that has been murdered. There is no recompense for a man's murder except the just killing of another man in due recompense. Why? Because a man or a woman or a boy or a girl is an image bearer of God. They are so special to God. Their injury and death is so significant to God, so terrible for you to do anything to a indiv human individual, that you are made legally to do something terrible to someone else who has perpetrated the crime in order to reinforce in your mind that human beings are precious in the sight of Almighty God. These Gibeonites knew that. We can't. They said, we can't take money for this. But they also said, we're also not authorized to do anything about it. We can't, we can't just kill somebody. This has to be done legally. They're, what they're doing is they're passing the ball back to David and saying, you have to decide this. And so David, as the judge, says, okay, tell me what you require. Now, I'll tell you what they were in the rights to require that everybody, everybody in the clan of Saul should have been put to death. The curse was on all Israel. When they said, we're asking for seven of Saul's sons to die, they were restraining themselves they were asking for the number that is the number of God in the Bible, God's work, God's action. 
And they were saying, we want this to be an act of God, not an act of revenge, retaliation, or whatever. We want God's justice to be satisfied. And we're asking for the complete number, the perfect number, the complete number, seven. To die for the sake of those people who were murdered. And in place of everybody who is by corporate solidarity implicated in their murder. Now this takes us to the very heart of atonement generally, sacrifice, the sacrificial system in Israel generally. You see what happened in Israel was this, going back to the Passover. The angel of death was coming to kill absolutely every first son in every household in Egypt, Jew or Egyptian or anybody else. The lamb was killed because the boys should have been killed. The lamb was killed in the place of the boys. On the day of atonement, all those animals were killed on the day of atonement in Israel because what God demanded, you see, from every human being was this, the soul that sins, it shall die. Death is the wage of sin. In the sacrificial system, God was showing mercy when he allowed them to kill an animal which he greatly values and which we should value in place of a man. And here in this story you see, so many had been murdered, so great was the atrocity that it was deemed necessary and right and David in agreeing to it, recognizes that this was in fact God's will, that seven should die in place of all the guilty offenders. And he, this story teaches us a principle that you find revisited in the New Testament. There can only be mercy where justice is done. Justice has to be done. It has to be done. And there can be no expiation. You can't just sort the problem until there is propitiation. Until God's wrath has been placated, turned away. Only then can there be reconciliation with God and reconciliation among ourselves. Here's how Paul explains it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith so that God might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. See, the issue is this. Not I deserve forgiveness, that God forgives me. That's the problem. How can God forgive me and be a just God? How can God forgive me and be good? Does my sin not mean anything? Does his moral law not mean anything? Is God capricious? No. The answer of the cross is God is just. And God comes and takes his own medicine, if you will. The completeness of this sacrifice of these seven finds its ultimate expression in the sacrifice of the one, 
for the many, the one for the many on the cross. That's the basis of mercy. Thirdly, I want you to notice the place of mercy. The place of mercy. For David, there's a problem here. There's Joshua's oath. Joshua's oath is, the curse of God will come upon us if we hurt the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites have been hurt. The curse of God is on them. The famine is the token of God's curse that hangs over the whole land and every person in the land. But David has made an oath. David has made an oath to Jonathan, the son of Joshua, who's, of Saul, who's now dead, that he would spare his son, Mephibosheth. So here's Mephibosheth, and technically speaking, Mephibosheth should really be among those who will die. But he doesn't die. Why? Because, verse 7, the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan because of the oath of the Lord that that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. He spared him because of the oath. He spared him. There was safety in the covenant. There was safety in the king's promise. You see, the two kings are being juxtaposed here. There is Saul who is a covenant breaker, and there is David who is a covenant keeper. As the Messiah, as the Lord's anointed one, as the Lord's Christ at this point in history, David is a covenant-keeping king. He remembers the oath he swore to Jonathan regarding Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth is preserved. In 1945, Ralph Davis tells the story, the Red Army were overrunning Berlin. And he tells the story of Gerd Buchwald, who was a German schoolteacher. Soviet troops were engaging in terrible raping, mass rapings and pillage. One evening, several drunken soldiers appeared at his door shouting, Frau, Frau, obviously looking for his wife. Herr Buchwald came to the door and made a gesture of resignation, tried to communicate with the Russians. The only two words he thought they might know was, Frau kaputt to try and communicate that his wife was dead. Well, they seemed to accept that, so, but they came into the apartment in any case, and they ransacked the apartment, and Buchwald stretched out on the sofa while they did their work. And what they didn't know was that his wife, Elsa, was hiding in a three-by-three-foot hole he had dug in the concrete underneath the sofa. And she was safe. She had a place of safety because he was committed. He was committed to protecting his wife. Mephibosheth is safe because the king is committed to keeping the covenant of God. Justice must be done. But keeping the covenant with an individual, he must be protected. The place of mercy. And then the last thing is the triumph of mercy. Were you listening as we read that last part about Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, who took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. He's a mother of one of those seven who once they've been killed are, have been taken and placed on a stake, on stakes, seven of them. From a distance they would look like crucified men. It wasn't crucifixion, 
that wasn't invented till very much later under the Greeks, but they looked like crucified men. And either way, by being hung on a stake, they are being placed under the curse of God. What you have to see is this. The whole land is under the curse of God. The famine is the sacrament of the curse. The men are placed on the stake. They have been sacrificed. And they have been put in the place of a curse. In place of the people. But will God accept the sacrifice? This one woman, a heroine, comes. She can't help her boys now, her two boys. But she can protect their bodies from the vultures that would eat them and from the wild animals at night that would attack them. And she waits and she watches and she guards. From mid-April to mid-October. By which time there's only bones. The Bible spares us the details, but it is heart-wrenching to put yourself in the place of this woman doing what she could do. It is a vigil of love. Love for her boys. A picture of love brought into the story that that is meant to touch our hearts. This is heartbreakingly amazing. David takes it seriously and he, he gets the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan who have been kept out of Israel, brings them back, takes the bones of these seven and he buries them with due respect. Everything has now been restored. You see, you need to remember the souls of these men haven't died. They're alive to God. They're alive to God. But within the orbit of this period in the history of the church, them being repatriated and given proper burial is an indication of the gracious kindness of God. And with their burial, the curse is removed. The rains fall. The land comes alive again. Do you see? You look at this story and you think of another woman, a mother, who has to stand while her son is pinned, naked, by the hands and the feet, his head pierced with a crown of thorns. And she has to stand in her heart, have a sword put through it to see her boy, her baby boy, suffer so. God wants us to see in this story and in Mary's story, love is there. Love is displayed. The Father wants to have mercy. But justice must be done. And God the Son has come and taken our humanity. 
that he might go to the cross in our place. It is dreadful. But I remind you that all of us are under the curse of God. All of us deserve not just to die physically, which we will unless Jesus returns, but to die eternally. And in the providence of God, these events take place so that we begin to understand the pathos of Calvary, of Golgotha, as we look at the men hanging in Gibeah. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear and me, the chief of sinners, spare? See, I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him, by a thousand falls. Whence to me this waste of love? Ask my advocate above. See the cause on Jesus' face, now before the throne of grace. There for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love. As I look at this woman watching in a vigil for these boys, I want you to see God. God is love. I know, I feel Jesus weeps and loves me still. I want you to go from Gibeah to Golgotha and to see mercy flows. When God is propitiated, there can be expiation. When wrath is removed and judgment is satisfied, there can be pardon. I ask you and urge you to receive the mercy and the pardon of God. Let's pray. Oh, our great God, our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus, we have no idea what our sin does to you. We have absolutely no idea what our petty little vices do to you, what our rejection of your Son does to you. We have no idea how our little sins affect the cosmic order of the universe and cause so much pain and hurt and injury and violence and death to our fellow human beings. We have no idea, no idea. We are caught up in a cosmic corporate solidarity of life as sons and daughters of Adam. And we need your mercy. Thank you that on the cross there is mercy in abundance. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Thank you. Amen.